going to war is not good for you. Anyone who thinks it is, is kind of a bit nuts. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your country. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you're going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Want what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Mark Matheson was a psychologist in the Australian Army, including time as the SAS Regimental Psychologist. He deployed to Timor and six times to Afghanistan. This is our conversation about the psychology of Special Forces soldiers and the impact of war. I'm Alex Lloyd, speaking over Zoom today with Mark Matheson. Mark, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks for having me. Mark, tell me a bit about your childhood. Where did you grow up? So I was born in Melbourne uh, in Queen Victoria Hospital, which is which is no longer there. My parents, well, actually my dad was uh, posted to um, work on uh, what was then a State Rivers and Water Supply Commission hydroelectric dam in northeastern Victoria. So he was a, a civil engineer uh, and uh, he'd been sent up to help um, design and construct the spillway of that dam. So... As a, as a year, very young uh, boy, I was spent about the first six years of my life up in the mountains of the northeast, so up around um, Mount Wills and Omeo and those sorts of areas, uh, pretty much running a, a fairly wild life uh, in the bush and uh, in those, what were those, in those days, quite wild rivers as well. They're all quite tamed now. But So I grew up in that, in that country area. Um, Dad... Uh, the, the dam kind of finished construction or was finishing construction. And so they were redeploying most of the engineers. And my dad got a job in uh, head office for State Rivers and Water Supply Commission, which in those days was in Turak. Um, so we moved back down to the Mornington Peninsula, to Frankston actually, um, which is where my mum's my family is from. Um, and I pretty much spent the rest of my childhood and teenage years growing up in and around you know, Frankston and Mount Eliza. And do you have any military history in the family, Mark? Yeah, look, a little bit. My grandfather, so my dad's dad, uh, he served. Um, uh, unfortunately, he he died quite young. So he had a massive heart attack. Um, would have been about 1949, I think. So my dad was only four. Um, so he served uh, for a number of years. I don't believe he actually deployed overseas. So he was... Um, uh, served with 9th Motor Regiment, which um, for whatever reason, I don't know much about it. But So he served for a little bit. Um, he may have gone over, but it would have been only a very small part of that. On my mother's side, my grandfather, uh, he had a bit more of an extensive military service history. So he served with the 2nd 25th. I think he went all the way across to Egypt and then came pretty much straight back um, and then served in Tarakan, uh, where he ended up getting blown up with, um, and, uh, with some shrapnel in him by a hand grenade a japanese hand grenade and uh was medevaced back to australia um and but he look he had a much longer i guess association with the military <laughs> not least of which because he lived a bit longer but um you know he was definitely involved in in veterans issues um 
you know, uh, for, for many years. So I remember him certainly being somebody who had some influence over me. My dad was uh, of an age to be conscripted to Vietnam, but wasn't, and he missed out on the ballot. Um, but yeah, both grandfathers um, were, were, were involved and, and that was sort of at the periphery of, of life. It was something that was, you know, came up at Christmases and, you know, get family get togethers, but it wasn't a predominant piece. Um, so not a strong military um, sort of uh, tradition in the family, but it was there in the background. So if it's just something there in the background, I guess what first piques your, the inter- your own interest in the military? Is it just history interest? Is it Anzac Day traditions or is it more a professional pursuit for you? Look, I think it was a, a, a personal interest. Um, I was um, an athlete as a young young guy. So, you know, PE was always my favourite subject, um, you know, ran cross-country and swam for the school. Um, so I was always interested in in performing as in physically pushing my limits. Um, got into triathlon, a bit like Dan Pronk, funnily enough. Uh, sort of, it was the was the time in the eighties where triathlon was sort of at its at its zenith, and I was uh, like everybody else, so on that bandwagon. Was doing quite well, test testing my limits, seeing what I could do, um, and I guess I was just fascinated by you know how how humans could push their limits and perform at their best. Um, and as part of that, I guess I was kind of fell into. Uh, you know, thinking about the military as another opportunity to to test myself physically and, I guess, psychologically. Um, and those uh, infamous Army Reserve ads with the 1318 Overture uh, sort of garnered my interest at a time when I was, you know, at uni studying undergraduate psychology, bored off my head academically because it was all sort of very basic psychology um, my passion was sports psychology, and I, that was sort of more of a postgraduate area of interest. And I thought, well, maybe maybe the Army Reserve is something that I could do where I could physically test myself, learn some new skills, and and perhaps ultimately put some of that psychology stuff to practice as well. So, so I joined the Reserves uh, as a soldier um, and did the good old six weeks basic training, you know, common induction training, I think it was called in those days. I was quite bit older at that stage i was 27 um and uh you know we're still finishing off my postgraduate psychology um and, and getting life underway i suppose professionally so it was a personal challenge to see if i could do something different why out of interest soldier and not an officer if you have you sound like someone who'd go down that more traditional officer route yeah i guess because i was drawn to um the physical challenge primarily been you know, having that sporting background um I knew that I could transfer across into the officer's stream as a psychologist once I'd finished my postgraduate studies. So I thought, well, there's nothing to be lost here by joining as a soldier, getting that kind of rubber stamp on your forehead to say you've done basic training, you've got some basic soldier skills under the belt. And look, if I really enjoyed that, I probably would have would have stayed. Um, I actually did apply initially and, and sort of express interest in reserve commando. So the... Um, two commando company in Williamstown in Melbourne were, were direct recruiting in those days. So you could join as a direct recruit um, soldier and go through commando training. And so I thought that that would be the bee's knees. I could certainly test myself physically uh, and also, you know, perhaps be able to perform as a psychologist in an elite capacity. Uh, unfortunately, I've got poor vision in one eye. So I was med class four at recruiting for commando. They said, no, nah, no, you're not going to meet the, the, the medical standards. 
And uh, funny story, I sort of, you know, kind of gave up on my military career at that stage after being told I was mid-class four. Um, they rang me 12 months later. So defense recruiting rang me uh, a year later and said, oh, we're, we're wondering if you're willing, you know, interested in continuing your application. We noticed that you, you haven't actually closed it off. And I said, well, you guys sent me a letter saying I was mid-class four. So I thought that was the end of the process. And they said, oh, okay, no, we didn't note that. We'll, we'll close off your file and that'll be the end of it. And I just sort of said, well, look, out of interest, are there different medical standards for different jobs? Because I'm also, you know, nearly a qualified psychologist. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you can get a waiver, a medical waiver for certain things if you've got critical skills. So you could definitely probably join as, you know, join psychology core um, because that's something that we, you know, we need as a, as a critical skill. So three months later, I'd basically joined as a soldier. But um, my destiny at that stage was to go into army psychology because that's the skill set they wanted. Um, and so after initial training, um, I went off to do Australian Army Psychology Call uh, ECN 131 uh, examiner training, uh, which I found, no offence against any examiners out there that are listening, I found incredibly boring. <laughs> so I spent two and a half years uh, as an examiner um, doing a lot of psych examiner work, uh, finishing off my master's and then transferred across into the officer stream at the first opportunity. My goal, interestingly, at that stage was to get back into special forces. So I spent the next seven years working my ring off uh, and ended up being posted back into, into special, into well, into then one commando regiment uh, in uh, about seven years or six years after that. It is funny you mentioned Dr. Dan Pronk earlier and what it is about ex-triathletes with end up with special forces aspirations via some sort of medical route. You joined in the late 90s. You've covered off your first few years there in the military. Before we get to uh, first commando regiment, though, like I said, you joined the late 90s, the main sort of action that was kicking around for us then. We'd done some peacekeeping work. Timor was a larger thing. But then this world-changing event happens, September 11, 2001, and we're coming up on the, as we record, coming up on the 20-year anniversary of that. What's your memory of 9-11? Well, look, I think like a lot of military personnel, I mean, it, it, it was very apparent very quickly within defence that, you know, there was a lot of change coming and it was coming extremely quickly. Um, and I think like, uh, again, like a lot of other military personnel, I mean, I watched with, with a degree of fascination and perhaps even a, a degree of uh, terror, you know, the, the, the lead up to the deployment into Timor, a lot of the logistic issues that, you know, caused great um, stress for the army and, and the rapid acquisition of a whole lot of products. And also in, I guess within, even within uh, a psychology core, um, you know, there was this, a rapid realization that uh, this time around really from 1999 onwards, um, you know, we were going to be deploying and we were going to be deploying on every rotation. And the, I guess the, um, the reality of what a lot of us had joined up to do, was really starting to sink in. So, I, I mean, I set a goal probably fairly shortly after 9-11 of saying, well, look, I, I need to now really get serious about thinking about whether I want to deploy because, A, there's only going to be limited opportunities if Timor, you know, was only going to last at that stage for a period of time. We knew there was people going, starting to go to the Middle East as well, but that was sort of seen as a far-flung dream for a, for a reserve psychologist. Um but look, things changed very rapidly and, and it became very apparent right across defence that, you know, you either got serious or you, or you really were just in the way. Um, my, my goal certainly was to, to get serious and I was certainly uh, fortunate enough to get a few gigs across to East Timor uh, as, a, as a newly minted captain in the reserve. 
Uh, and that was, I guess, the first indication that certainly Psychology Corps was pretty light on. Um, you know, we had only a small number of officers in the regular army and they were on high rotation already, you know, from sort of 2001 onwards. They were also, you know, they were staffing the rotations into the Middle East. They were staffing the rotations that were going through Timor. And when you've only got 30 or 40 officers in your uh, entire corps, um, and, and of those, probably only 10 or 20 are deployable at any one point in time for a variety of critical posting reasons, uh, suddenly, you know, things get busy. I'm sure. And you mentioned your Timor deployment then. I don't want to overlook that. It's, I suppose it sets sort of a foundation benchmark or a measurement point where you get to measure what is so different about the special forces work you end up doing. What is your role in Timor, you're obviously deployed as a psychological examiner and psych support. What's the kind of that day-to-day for you in a deployment context? Yeah, so that was a, I mean, I first deployed to Timor in 2003. So the, the, there's, the operation itself was in a sort of a maintenance phase. Um, you know, most of the ARA psychology personnel had already been there um, and done that. And they were then now starting to staff the, the Middle East rotations. And so I was sort of seen in many ways as a bit of a, a litmus test. We still had a um, a uh, embedded psych support team, and a psych support team is really only two personnel: so a psychological examiner, a soldier, and an officer, so a psychologist. Um, so I was the psychologist at that stage. I'd, I'd finished my masters and was now across on the dark side as a as a psychology officer, um, just promoted to captain, uh, and I had a psychological examiner or a sergeant. Um, who was the other part of the team. So I went across in late 2003 and we did what's called a force insertion extraction team. So we were a team of logisticians, doctors, uh, psychologists, um, other loggies that were pulling the rotation out. So they're doing a rip out um, and we had to do with most of their psych screens. So everyone at that stage, it had been mandated by, uh, by army that everyone had a psych screen before they left country. So we were pushed down to a little place called Port Hira uh, and basically we saw everyone who'd just come out of theatre uh, and then they jumped on, you know, the, the little planes in those days back to Darwin and, and went home. So that was my first trip, only a very short one, about six weeks. Uh, and then basically I was being evaluated, I guess, by, by head of corps and by army psychology corps. You know, could, I, could I operate effectively in that space as a reservist? Got the tick in the box, I'm assuming. And then in early 2004, they asked me to be the embedded team. So that was a four-month gig. Uh, you're embedded um, basically with the, the formation at the headquarters level. So Australian National Command Element, ASN, ASNCE, it was called in those days. Um, and you're the team that supports the entire uh, contingent. And from that perspective, which is a slightly different perspective, uh, you're effectively one of the commander's strategic HR managers. So any personnel issues that are going on in theatre, whether it be you know soldiers struggling with uh, marital stuff back home, and there's a you know case about whether we compassionately return them to Australia, or through to you know people's careers continue in theatre. So you have people that are applying for you know subsequent postings. It might be a remote locality posting when they get back to Australia. Uh, there's a requirement to have a psychological evaluation uh, before they can have that posting struck. Uh, so you'd have uh, people changing um, trades. You'd have people that were applying for uh, pilot training or, you know, so people's careers continued. And we, 
we did very much didn't want them to to feel penalized by going on an operation and so that meant having this sort of uh, capability in theater where they could go and get their medical evaluations done for these things that were going to happen back in australia later in their career and also getting the psych evaluation done for those things as well as well as all the, you know, putting out the, the small spot fires where, where people were having difficulties on the deployment or difficulties back home. They might need a little bit of, you know, supportive counselling. They might need an assessment report written to, to, to provide some evidence for the commander about how best to manage those people. So, you know, my brief when I flew into Timor on that job, um, uh, the, uh, the XO at that stage was a RAFI. Um, in the Australian National Command. Now, he knew absolutely nothing about psychologists because RAF had very few psychologists at that stage. His brief to me at the beginning of my four-month trip was, uh, I think you've got a troopie outside, that's your car. I know, I'm pretty sure you know where your room is. I'm assuming you know what to do with your job. I'll see you in four months. Um, and that was it. So pretty much uh, we made it up as we, as we went based on what the previous rotation of psychologists had done. But we had huge freedom of movement. We had a vehicle. We could go wherever we wanted in the theatre. We just basically went where the work was. So if something happened or there was a, a critical incident and we needed to work with some of the soldiers to debrief them, then we'd you know, jump on a UN helo and fly to that location. Um, we made regular trips down to Westbat, um, which was, the, I guess, the front line, if you want to call it that, down on the um, sort of the border between Indonesia and, and uh, sorry, West Timor and East Timor. Um, and, and provided services in that location. We pretty much went around wherever we wanted to go in the theatre to make sure that we got the job done because it was only the two of us. And it's five or six years you've been in the military, you finally get these deployments. So you join as a reservist and then you're getting that sort of full-time operational experience, um, I can imagine. And also, again, in the first couple of years after September 11, I can only imagine that's making you hungrier for that sort of special forces interest and Middle East deployments. And then as we covered briefly earlier in 2005 you do get two special forces with uh, two company first commander regiment yeah so we'd been working in support of two company in melbourne anyway because i was posted into into melbourne at that stage as a reserve psychologist um so again we kind of had a remit to cover the, all of the victorian units that required support um so and i made a point of sort of waving my hand and saying look you know this is an area i'm really keen at i've got some skills in in performance-based psychology so you know i think there's some opportunities there to to push the envelope um and, and maybe it would give me a little bit of extra credibility with those guys as well coming from a sports psychology background perhaps rather than a clinical psych background but look there was no doubt that it was, it was certainly my goal to try and get there and i agitated for that um and that resulted in a you know in a posting and a position being created uh, we did have a psychologist at regimental headquarters in Sydney, um, but it was a, there was a clear recognition that that person could not provide services geographically to Melbourne. It was just too too hard. So there was a, a huge advantage in having a local reserve psychologist being able to post in, form that relationship, that working relationship with the you know the OC and the command team, and then provide services in support of of what the broader one commando regiment. So I posted in there. The first, you know, as you can imagine, the first sort of three to six months is just building relationships, trying not to step on anyone's toes, trying not to make a fool of myself and, and, and learning the ropes and getting involved with the, the training pipeline, which at that stage, of course, was also ramping up. There was a recognition that, you know, for RAR, which was, you know, rebadged commando, was still in its infancy and was still sort of finding its feet. 
There was a lot of round out reinforcement and rotation work. A lot of the subject matter expertise in commandos had resided in one commando for eons up until that stage. And so that people were being pulled up into Sydney to provide course, you know, course support or instruction, or then starting to round out rotations once commandos started to deploy into the Middle East as well. So there was quite a, quite a busy time. I mean, I think as a reservist in those days, I was probably getting close to 150 to you know, 130, 140, 150 days a year, as well as managing a civvy job and young kids. Um, and there was many times where I'd you know, drive from the Mornington Peninsula, um, work in the city all day, um, ironically working for Defence Force Recruiting at that stage, then go out to Williamstown, parade for another you know four to six hours until... 11 o'clock at night, sleep overnight on the floor uh, and then, you know, drive drive back to work in the city the next day, work that day and then go home. Um, so there was, you know, sort of a, a 48-hour period which was all almost entirely dedicated to defence. Pretty dedicated for a part-time gig. Well, it was that sort of unit. I mean, one commando, again, at that stage, you know, m- most of the operators, most of the guys that were also reservists, Many of them did well over 100 days, as well as managing jobs. It was the only way you could possibly get anywhere near the competency standards required, um, you know, as a commando, um, which were ratcheting up rapidly, obviously, because of the the draw by, you know, four uh, and the the rapid skill acquisition required to get them up to speed uh, as a deployable force. So, you know, I I was... uh, Certainly not alone in, in in often sleeping in the unit overnight. That was a regular occurrence by medical personnel, by operators, by you know many people. Um, it, it was you know I think that the irony of it being called a reserve unit, um, you know, it, it, it operated very much uh, like a full time unit in many ways. So there was certainly an expectation if you got posted there then then you needed to keep up otherwise you know you were just you were just left behind and, and seen as a an ancillary logistical problem that uh you know di- didn't wasn't there at the right times when it was needed to be there well it's all good having it as a reserve regiment in peacetime but for context 2005 we are going back to afghanistan after having left and obviously the SAS have been deployed for RAR bracket commando, like you said, ratcheting up and they became renamed the 2nd Commando Regiment in 2009. What I think is actually less spoken about in the conversation is the role of the 1st Commando Regiment in not just supplying individuals who then might rotate into the full-time regiment, but actually deploying themselves. And that is with that regiment, you see your deployments to the Middle East. Can you give the listener, I guess, a bit of context on what one commando does as a regiment over the time you're there in the context of our operational interests and then how your personal experiences tie into that. Yeah, for sure. So look, I think, you know, this was the stage really when, when SOCOM as an organization was, was finding its feet. So it was, it was an all hands on deck, um, I guess, uh, culture across the entire um, formation in many ways. So within at that stage, uh, within uh, SOCOM, we had uh, possibly two full-time psychologists, one at uh, four and one in the West, so one at SASR. Uh, we had uh, two or three reserves, sorry, correction, probably three or four reservists, so one in, at Perth, um, one at RHQ for one commander regiment and one notionally at four. 
Um, and there was nobody at SO headquarters. So there was nobody flying the mental health or, or sort of um, uh, special, special operations psychology component flag at uh, SO headquarters. Um, so that was, you know, we were often, so we were getting senior commanders reaching down from SO headquarters to find out how to do things from a mental health psychology perspective and, and try and implement policies. And let's not forget that, you know, the, the training pipeline for a commando or a, an SASR trooper is a long time. You know, you've got a two, two to three year lead time at least um, from, you know, it, that's just even starting from selection. And then prior to that, that individual is probably dedicated 12 months to 18 months of training to get to the start line. So the logistical components of running those selection courses and running all of the training courses required to bring these guys up to speed, um, you know, was was well behind the eight ball by the time we got to 2005. Uh, and so there was just a plethora of things happening. There was selection courses being run back to back, special forces entry tests being run around the country, um, special forces recruiting tools being run around the country by both east and west sides. And all of those things required medical support, um, you know, because a lot of the entry standards are medical and or psychological support. So they all require a special forces psych assessment. They all require a whole lot of paperwork. They all require a special forces paper board where, you know, special forces training center, as it was used to be called in those days, would sit around and have 200 applications on their desk uh, every six months that they had to filter down, try and get rid of the appropriate people that, you know, really shouldn't have been there ethically and morally, uh, and that required a psychologist. So for a staff of, of a, maybe four full-time positions across the whole command, um, you could see why we're pretty busy. Um, and, and certainly even as reservists, you know, there was an expectation that you would go up and support CSTC, the selection course, which in those days was, yes, four weeks on the ground, but, you know, four weeks of admin prior, four weeks of admin after, um, and so getting time off work, getting time away from your family, it, it was just manic. <laughs> manic but exciting, you know, manic because there was lots of cool stuff and lots of opportunities to, to really make a difference. And tell me about your deployments to the Middle East. So, look, we realised pretty early again, I mean, the, the, the two full-time psychology positions within uh, SASR and then for RER, I mean, they had full-time workloads back here in Australia. So they were looking after an entire regiment as a, as a digital posting. So in the West, you've got you know, upwards of 700 plus people and in, in, in certainly very similar uh, over on the East Coast. And then you've also got Special Forces Training Center, One Commander Regiment, et cetera. So, so there were full-time jobs for those two individuals back here in Australia. And then we had on top of that, the, the ramping up of deployments to the Middle East. So we had you know, 300 odd personnel rotating in or out of theater on both sides of the country commencing about 2005, as you said. So that meant a psych support team going over every three or four months to sit there for up to six weeks to do all of that rip work, to do all of the psych debriefing, to bring in the new rotation to prepare them, make sure everyone signed off and done their psych screens, uh, and then come home, do your own decompression, do your own sort of re, you know, refit, recharge, uh, and potentially get, to, you know, get ready to do it again. So I think... Uh, I think I deployed probably four times over those first few years as a reservist again, um, which, you know, uh, once you come back, it's not like you sort of get six months off, you're back into supporting selection courses. 
uh, et cetera, et cetera. So they were, they were mostly what I would call, you know, force insertion extraction teams. You go across, you're, you're embedded into the, the SOTG rotation. You're there to pull out the team that's leaving and make sure they manage back into, into care. And then you're also there to, you know, to welcome that new, new team in. There's a handover component. So we would be required to collect and collate all of the data from the individual debriefs, de-identify it, and then write a handover brief from a mental health well-being uh, and performance sort of workplace stress component to uh, both the outgoing CO of the SOTG and to the incoming CO so that the CO coming in would have an idea of some of the issues that they may face with their personnel during that rotation. So you would be responsible for doing that, that uh, data collection and debriefing all the personnel, writing a report, sitting with the, the COs and, and briefing them on what you'd found. Uh, and that would also go back to SO headquarters. Um, so pretty, pretty high level stuff, quite stressful. You know, you're briefing pretty, pretty senior commanders who are obviously, you know, for, for many of them, it was also, you know, a really important component of their career. We didn't know how long, the SOTG rotations were going to go for. So everyone was keen to, to perform well. And that included, you know, the, the various COs of those rotations. Um, and so as, a, as again, a, I guess a, a fairly junior captain still in the reserve, in a, in a core, which is often not seen as, as critical to the functioning of a special force operation, you know, there was a fair amount of stress um, to get it right. Um, because it was reflective across the rest of, you know, certainly not just this um, SO sort of special operations command, but also the broader army. Well, you end up deploying to the Middle East more often than many infantrymen in the regular army. You go to Iraq in 2006 and Afghanistan in 05, 06, twice in 2008, 2009 and 2011. So you are away a lot and the workload you describe is cerebral and intensive and um, emotional labor as well. And across that, you're with uh, one commando, 05 to 07, and then you're the regimental psychologist for the Special Air Service Regiment for a year in 2008. Just across from 05 to 08, when you're working with commandos and then SASR, just that first few years of getting stuck into that back-to-back rotations and deployments, how do, I guess, do you see the atmosphere in the room change do you see a change and what it does it what does that picture look like over those over those 3 or 4 years yeah look i think what what i certainly noticed and i think it was uh, a common uh, you know common commonly agreed sort of thought pattern was that there was an immense professionalization of of socom so you know there was a lot of stuff that had only ever been done in training um, or was just a concept or was you know f- fitted for but not with um, type in terms of equipment that was able to be, I guess, um, you know, battle proven. So there was an immense development, even, even you know, having a look at the the gear that I was issued in 05 through to the gear you were issued in, you know, 2011, the, the amount of change within SOCOM was astounding in many ways. I mean, at the time, it's it's a bit like getting up and watching your hair grow in the mirror each day. You don't really notice that those things are changing. But but in hindsight, you can see that, you know, the dramatic changes that occurred in, in all sorts of components, um, parts of, of uh, SOTG rotations. And then the filter down of that into training, selection, 
um, uh, and just the general, I guess, professionalism within special operations. Not that it wasn't professional before, but it, it, it was just such a rapid period of change that, um, it, look, it was an immensely exciting time. Um, there was always opportunities to do and experience amazing things. Um, and certainly, obviously, within, within SOCOM, that was uh, even more prevalent. Um, but you look, there were opportunities that presented themselves that you either had to, to grab and run with or, or you were left behind. Uh, and look, you know, my, fortunately, I was in a you know, good, good, good sort of stage of my life. I had a well-established well business. Um, you know, I had kids by that stage and, and I had a very supportive partner. Um, but it was, was full on. Um, and it probably wasn't until after, I think, probably 2008 at that stage, after a, a year of full-time work uh, at the, uh, over in Perth and, and two deployments that year as well. One, <laughs> the second one, I actually uh, got extended in theatre. So I was over there in, in late November and my sister was getting married in December. So I had, had been told that I would definitely be home for her wedding. Uh, and then they extended me um, into, into to nearly Christmas. And so they flew me from uh, basically from Tarrant Cot all the way back to Australia on a Friday. I was at my sister's wedding on a Saturday. I was back on the A330 on the following Monday and back in theatre by the next Wednesday. Um, and, and that was just the sort of stuff that they would do because it was everything was run on the smell of an oily rag and was just into time management. Uh, and there wasn't like there was another psychologist they could just you know pick and say oh yep you've done force prep you've done all the ticks in the boxes you're qualified on M4 you know how to do all these things so we can just plug you in and not worry about it it was just well he's the only one we promised him he'd get to his sister's wedding so we'll just make it happen well you talk about though something like the gear improving and that increase of professionalism in our tier one forces but then how does that then translate further into the human personnel management? Like you have joked earlier that psychologists not always regarded as the most essential role type, especially in a special forces unit. Did the appreciation and usefulness of your role change while you were there? Is that something more in hindsight? Or how did you just find your practical application of your skills on the ground changing? The Defence Force itself and certainly special forces have come a long way. I mean, I remember doing Return to Australia Psych screens in 2003 in Timor with fairly young infantry soldiers, predominantly male, of course, in those days. And you know, I don't think we've still got too many females, unfortunately. But um, And look, their, I guess, uh, feedback or, or reaction to a psych screen was was fairly flippant very few of them took it seriously very few of them you could tell were certainly comfortable with the process uh and as a result you got pretty minimal input back in 2003 by about 2008 you know that had started to change so so people had got comfortable with the process they they knew that it was mandatory Many had had at least one or two before. Uh, and certainly the same was prevalent in SOCOM. You just had a higher level of professionalism. So, you know, even if it was a fairly junior trooper or commando's first experience of a return to Australia psych screen, they, they were usually professional enough to take it seriously or at least be really good at lying through their teeth. I'm not sure. And look, they just got more comfortable with it over time. Certainly at that, that sort of one-on-one -on -one, um, sort of perspective or experience, you know, people just got used to it. They just they just knew that you went out to get them. You were there to help. 
Um, and whilst many of them didn't really, I think, probably even realize themselves that they, you know, had stuff that they could have talked about, um, they were at least professional enough to, to sort of engage in the process quite, quite willingly. At a command level, I guess it, it was probably more, um, I think, more personality based. So you had some commanders who really valued the input um, from, a, I guess, a strategic HR perspective, how best to help you know, manage their, their personnel. Um, and they were often, I guess, the people who had personalities that were, um, you know, of the view that, you know, people were best managed through a, um, you know, a personal relationship. And, and you could see that they were interested in what you had to say. And, and whilst they might not always agree with or follow your recommendations, they were certainly quite willing as commanders to hear your point of view and to take it into consideration. There were certainly other commanders for whatever reason who just thought it was, to, I guess, to be honest, a load of shit. Um, and, and that might be because of, you know, their own experiences or their stage of life or their own personal sorts of views about mental health and psychology. Um, that was certainly always professional and always, you know, still engaged in the process. Um, but the, the outcomes were often quite different. Um, and look, the, the, I guess the difficulty as a, as a, you know, allied health logistics sort of background person is that, you know, we were never there to make life more dis- difficult for anyone. We were always there to try and assist in the maintenance and enhancement of, of their human capability. That was our primary objective. If we weren't there to enhance or, or manage their, their human capabilities, then, then why the hell were we there? But yeah, you often had a hard time convincing some commanders that, that that was genuinely why you were there, that they had suspicions that you were there to, you know, to send the soldiers back home or to make life more difficult for them by, by feeling sorry for soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. So you had to work quite hard to win them over. Um, and there were some you just didn't win over and that was okay. We also though will see an increase of impact of these deployments on personnel from Looking at a casualty perspective, by complete coincidence, we're talking on the 8th of July, which is now the 13th anniversary of Sean McCarthy's passing. And in 2007, I think we had four casualties and then that pace picks up. And so you're starting to sort of see the beginning of that, I guess, and not looking for any specific names and stories here, but I suppose also you're having to process on, keep an eye on units that are suffering casualties in field and they're not getting to go home. They've got to keep carrying on with uh, their day-to-day tasks in the field, which we know are immense and um, intense in their nature. How does that change as well when you're dealing with that kind of on the ground, not just the rapidity of the deployments, but then also as the cost of them gets higher? Yeah, look, it's it's quite an interesting piece, and 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 this is where I guess, um, you know, perhaps I was certainly finding that that my views, uh, both professional and personal, were, were deviating a little bit away from what the the mainstream of of army psychology and mental health was was trying to promote. We'd seen a transition, I guess, um, for all the perhaps obvious reasons. Uh, within particularly the Australian Army Psychology Corps over the preceding sort of five years to a far more clinical focus. So they were much more interested and engaged with and training psychologists around clinical assessment, um, counselling, et cetera. And that was probably as a result of what we'd started to see coming out of the legacy of, you know, even Timor, there was a, you know, certainly an uptick in, in trauma and, and people requiring counselling. 
But what psychologists had always done in the army is, is been this sort of strategic human resource capability. So yes, they delivered some counseling and clinical support, but they were also there as I guess the overarching, um, you know, biofeedback tools, if you want to call it that to commanders to help them manage their capability in the, in the field. And that was probably no more prevalent prevalent than in than special forces. You know, they 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 needed, they knew they needed some clinical capability, but it, it probably wasn't really necessary for that to be in the field, because a we'd done a whole lot of selection work to to choose people that were resilient and robust. So they, even if they weren't coping with some of those things particularly well, they were able to compartmentalize it and keep going with their job. And look, army's a bit of a brutal beast in some ways. It, you know. The, the mission is paramount. That doesn't mean we're, we're cavalier or disregard the, the human impact of trauma on individuals, um, but we don't stop the war, you know, particularly in special forces. You can't stop the war because usually they're, you know, well inside enemy lines and, and, and so far away from support where how are you going to get them out? So what we were finding in SOCOM, I guess, is that, you know, we would be... You know, let's say we had a, a trips in contact experience. There was somebody injured. Um, so that would be considered in, I guess, the, the clinical mindset of many psychologists as a critical incident. You know, there's potential for trauma there. Um, and we were getting pressure. And by we, I mean the, the psychologist in SOCOM. We were getting pressured by the rest of army psychology, mental health, to, to kind of lean in and intervene and, and to kind of almost stop the war and say, no, those guys need to come back. They need to have a what we call a critical incident mental health support process. They need to be screened um, because we know that early identification of trauma is good. What they perhaps weren't, I think, as good at reading is that that's not what SOCOM was about. SOCOM was about continuing the fight. And so we had to walk this middle line where we, we, on one hand, obviously as a, as a member of SOCOM and, and responsible to the command in SOCOM, you know, my advice to those commanders was unless there was really clear behavioural evidence that so certain soldiers weren't dealing with that in the field, then you crack on. Uh, we'll deal with it. I mean, my job is to deal with any fallout of that after the fact when they come back inside the wire or, or at the end of their rotation. Um, we, but we deal with it strategically. We don't always deal with it tactically. Um, and, and the presumption of resilience, the presumption of the capacity to continue on should be the primary presumption because we've selected and trained these individuals to, to, to be able to deal with that. Uh, and of course, there are always individuals um, fairly rare, I think, that, that couldn't deal with it at the time. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the balancing of that operational imperative uh, and the presumption of the ability to cope in a special forces soldier was, I think, uh, made the rest of army mental health uncomfortable. It was scared, you know, that we maybe we'd be held liable for, for that sort of view. So what we were seeing probably more often than, than the trauma-based stuff was the impact of those cumulative deployments on individuals. So it was a, a fatigue, a chronic fatigue. And I don't mean that in the sense of the syndrome, but just if soldiers were away from partners, children, normalcy life back home for for six or eight months of pretty much every year not always entirely on deployment but you know there's still promotion courses there's still requalification courses that they need to do when they get back 
um, you, you just start to see people's lives fragment, um, you know. Uh, um, and so part of the, the role of a psychologist in many of those units is to sit on what used to be called the, um, the HR board, the Human Resources Board, which is now called a Welfare Board, um, and to basically weekly, on a weekly basis, to monitor the personnel and identify any, any individuals that were starting to struggle. Uh, and to put in place sort of management plans for those things. So we were certainly starting to see an uptick in the the number of personnel that were struggling at the HR board. Um, interestingly, that was always viewed as stuff that was going on back home. So it was only ever you know the HR board only ever happened back in the regimental headquarters back in back in Australia. So the operations were seen as separate, um, and because we had this functional you know sort of emphasis to cope. We didn't pick up on as much stuff overseas, but we certainly knew uh, and, and were feeding back to commanders, look, by about 2007, 2008, if not earlier, guys were getting tired and all of the warning signs for that were primarily happening back home, marital breakdowns, you know, fights, getting into small disciplinary issues. Um, for support staff, it was often a request to post out, you know, that, that, they, that were just so sick of the tempo and being smashed that they wanted to go back to normal army. Um, and so they were the warning signs we were seeing, not so much the trauma and the losses. I mean, I would say that that people uh, parked a lot of that stuff. They were too busy on the operation and, and didn't have the capacity and didn't want to let their mates down. Uh, and, and it's what we're seeing and what is often known to be the case with trauma is that it's usually stuffed in a box in the back of your memory and once you get out of army, once you get out of the structure in the routine, that's when you you sort of you, you, your spiritual being, if you want, or your or your mind says, "Oh, I've got time to unpack that now." And so we start to see the wheels fall off once they get out of army for the trauma based stuff. And the fact they can put that trauma in a box because they're selected for that capability, for that level of psychological resilience, that also validates the mandate you're given by SOCOM that your first priority while you are on deployment was to preserve the capability of the unit and prioritize that over individual care. Not that there wouldn't often be overlap with those things, but if it came to one between the two, the capability is what mattered when you were over there. Look, absolutely. And, and look, it's, a, it's an ethical and a moral line. And obviously for a psychologist, it's, it's a professional line. There, there was never a circumstance that I can recall um, where as a mental health professional, I was asked or commanded to, to make a recommendation or change a recommendation that would increase the damage psychological or otherwise to, to a human being. Um, were we asked to make judgments about how long can this person stay in theatre? Can we or should we move this person into a different role in theatre? Um, absolutely. You know, and I think they're all good strategic sort of human resource management requirements. So if somebody's struggling, um, you know, maybe they've had a, a series of bad experiences and they've just lost their mojo outfield, um, rather than package them up and send them home, let's see if we can change their role, keep them inside the wire, give them a, a useful skill, um, where they can contribute, see if they can get their mojo back, uh, and then you know we push them back outside the wire again. That was the sort of stuff that happened more often than not, um, and I think that was just good good human resource management. Um, you know, the clinicians might say, "Yeah, but well, there's the potential to re-traumatize that individual," but if we sent home each every person who had the potential to be traumatized, you know, in a high intensity counterinsurgency warfare, 
well, there'd be no one left. You don't have an army then, no. <laughs> no, it's right. It's it's kind of bad for you from the outset. So we need to, you know, you need to recognize that going to war is not good for you. Anyone who thinks it is is kind of a bit nuts. No, but the measure of that trauma, I suppose, is relative to the nature of the work and what you know you're going over there to do. You said before that the real warning signs were back home and things like marriage breakdowns, and you could see then that the wheels starting to come off, to use that cliche, and you were quoted in the Australian, I think last year, quote, people had their values and morals effectively broken by chronic deployment to a basket case for country and seeing good friends do bad things and good friends die. Can you talk more to that and sort of how that rapid rate of deployments had that impact on individuals over time and also how that was able to occur? Yeah, look, I think it's you know, there's a there's a great model in um in uh, aircraft accident investigations called the Swiss cheese model, which you, you may have heard about, and some of your, your listeners have probably heard about as well. Which which is just a whole lot of small you know errors lining up. Uh, and look, I think what happened uh, in my experience, and, and and I guess from from the knowledge that I gained personally, was something along those lines. I mean. There's so many components of that that it, it actually is quite hard to put your finger on one and say, well, that's the reason why we ended up with a, you know, Inspector General ADF major investigation into into you know, bad stuff happening. But certainly, I think you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, and we can look back and we can start to see the genesis for some of these holes in the layers of the Swiss cheese starting to occur quite early, and and fatigue was one of them. Um, you know, we don't have any data. Um, we do now, but we didn't have any data about the impact of multiple deployments over, you know, um, a, a fairly compressed period of time. Um, the US was starting to get some data, you know, in the mid 2000s to mind you, their deployments are 12 months. You know, our guys in, in SOCOM were only doing four months. Um, you know, we bought in or the army tried to bring in a policy of, of not allowing um socom soldiers to deploy within a 12-month window so the maximum time you could spend overseas was was four months and that was for exactly that reason it was for a good reason we were trying to to maintain the capability by giving the opportunity to rest but on the other side of that you've got you know politicians and and political agendas which I would suggest were, were, you know, somewhat reticent to use mainstream army. Clearly, there was a fear about the the capabilities and and the potential losses if we used, you know, mainstream infantry to do some of those tasks. We politicians, I think, probably suspected or knew that they had a safer option in continuing to use um, SOTG rotations to do the heavy lifting. And let's not pretend for a minute that within SOTG, there wasn't a desire to continue to do that. I mean, remembering that we had this massive acquisition of new technologies, new capabilities. Um, you know, many of these units were now interacting with, with other tier one units around the globe. There was lots of opportunity for, you know, technology and training transfer. There was lots of relationships being formed, both with, you know, our allies and other, other forces that we had often very limited opportunities to train with or operate alongside. So there was a huge amount of good stuff coming into SOCOM at that time, which was drawing those rotations forward. You know, we guys wanted to go back because it was uh, an opportunity just to continue to grow that capability. And I look, I think there's possibly even um, more so within SASR, which had lost a lot of focus with the 
um, rapid sort of bring uh, capability coming online from Commando, uh, from from the Commando capability. So if if Commandos were getting a lot of that quasi infantry work because it's better suited to them anyway, what did you know SASR have left to do? The the strategic sort of surveillance stuff was seen as kind of boring. Um, you know, we had ISR and lots of other techno aspects that were taking a lot of those capabilities offline anyway, so they didn't need a human asset as much. Uh, and so I think there was this really, you know, this sort of impetus to, to keep pushing limitations, to continue to grow, to evolve that SAS capability into something new uh, as soon as possible, which meant that we, you know, the unit, I think, wanted to keep going back there. So let's, I think it's important not to deny that and say, that, you know, they were forced to go. There, there was a clearly a motivation to go. Um, but it's a bit, perhaps, I don't know if it's a great metaphor, it's a bit like asking a greyhound not to run. You know, they like running. So, um, you know, there had to be a recognition perhaps um, at a mature, responsible level that, yes, we could let the greyhound run itself to death or, or perhaps we needed to also be able to step in and say, how, how do we best maintain this capability we're starting to get some feedback that suggests it's getting tired it's starting to you know get sort of fatigued and things are getting a bit creaky and there's individuals that are you know perhaps exhibiting some behaviors we should be worried about um but that got caught 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 up in this enthusiasm to, to keep doing the job to keep saying yes and that obviously filtered down to individual levels where you know as we did start to lose some 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 capability, particularly in logistical areas, you know, people were just getting burnt out and not able to redeploy. We would start to, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul. So that, that guy who meant to, you know, had done a four month rotation was meant to have eight months off. You know, we'd go cap in hand often and say, look, we really need this, you know, capability in theater. You're the only person that has it. Um, You know, we'll sign off. We'll get chief of army to sign a waiver. And, you know, if you're prepared to go again, um, we'll send you back over. And so the whole thing started to accelerate where people were continuously being big, you know, brought forward and more and more waivers were sought. And if you're in that kind of environment and that kind of unit and that kind of brotherhood and that kind of personality, you're not going to say no to that. You don't say no, no, absolutely not. Because it's, it's seen as letting your mates down and, and, and in a special forces, you know, small team environment, that's the worst thing you could do. It's the end of your career. You've just bailed on your mates. Um, and look, let's not pretend that that every single person who did that ended up broken. There are a lot of guys and girls uh, who did that sort of stuff and came out the other end okay. You know, it's not everybody that was you know totally burnt out. Um, it's just unfortunate, I guess, that the nature of many military organisations is if you are the individual who's struggling, uh, who who perhaps is having your life fall apart around you, um, you don't put your hand up. You know, because the culture is accelerating away from you very rapidly, and and so it's 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 actually safer psychologically to just shut up and keep doing it and hope. I quoted that Australian article because it's obviously something with the Brereton report and all the furor around alleged war crimes and the Ben Robert Smith defamation trial and all the stuff that's going on in the press. There is a understandable interest from the public for answers and for an explanation of sort of our international reputation is on the line here for a war many people don't understand i understand where there's armchair critics and hindsight goggles to diagnose past causes of 
potential current issues, but then things like looking at psychology reports, it's not like you and your colleagues, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but you and your colleagues at the time weren't writing reports about, well, we're having this burnout from too much deployment or we're having this um, moral or psychological fatigue or not going, waving a flag. Hey, you're setting up ground for potential war crimes here. You're writing that because you're concerned about the individuals. And to a greater extent, you know, therefore, if you have individuals burning out, you are having a reduction in capability for those regiments as well. But it's on that personal scale and hindsight can pin, ah, well, that explains the issue we're dealing with now. Look, absolutely. And, you know, let's not pretend for a minute that the, the psychological capability wasn't, you know, um, pre, you know uh, sort of vulnerable to the same things. I mean, as I said earlier, there was only a small team of us that were often doing multiple rotations ourselves. The capability within the site, capability within SASR, was not always great at talking it to the site capability in commandos, and we certainly didn't always talk very effectively with the command. The, you know, the capability that started to become established in SO headquarters, and we almost never talked to the the capability in broader army. So we filed those reports largely as individuals, largely as a, a report about one particular rotation, uh, and we sent those reports off to Canberra to SO headquarters or to you know, Penguin initially and then Bungandor uh, ultimately uh, with a view like any other sort of captain level officer that somebody would be putting those pieces of the puzzle together and saying, well, hang on, there's a trend here. You know, I can see that over the last two years, we've started to see an increase in, you know, compassionate return to Australia's or a, an increase in people, you know, reporting to uh, welfare boards, et cetera. But of, but, of course, nobody was doing that. Um, well, perhaps if they, if they were, they certainly weren't <laughs> doing it very well. But, um, you know, uh, I, I think that, again, there was this forward-looking uh, organisation at SO headquarters that was always thinking about planning the next rotation and, and the capacity to really stop, learn from the trends that were coming out of the data uh, and implement change was was kind of not so much forgotten, but just it just wasn't prioritised. It was too busy, too too rapid. Everything was moving so quickly. It was always the next deployment, the next rotation. Let's focus on that. And this these reports were often, I think, I suspect, probably just filed with a great intention of somebody coming back in the future and and you know doing that data analysis. But there just wasn't the cap the capability to do that. We can now, which is I guess why we can look back and you know even individuals like myself can look back over my series of deployments and go, oh, yeah, well, look, there is some some trends there. I didn't really notice them at the time. I noticed the individual stuff at the time and put that in the report. But but now looking back, I can go, oh, of course, you know, the, the, the rates of burnout, the rates of trauma, things were, things were increasing. We, we probably should have noticed that. Um, and we did in other ways. We did in technological ways and skill ways. We just didn't do it so well in mental health ways. And look, all I can suggest, and, and uh, I think it's a reasonable assumption, is that just like everything else in military, I mean, most of those people in, in SO headquarters and in command positions are on two-year postings. Uh, is two years long enough to be able to see the trend? Now, if it's laid out for you in a, in a pretty graph, you know, someone's done all that work and can show the preceding, you know, six or seven rotations that there's an increase in something, then, yeah, of course you'd expect somebody to go, oh, well, hang on, something bad's happening here. We, we better do something about it and it's on my watch, so I better better do it. But I don't think that ever happened. I think there was just a, so much data coming in from 
these sorts of deployments that a lot of it was it was just assumed that we'd get around to that in the future and that everyone was too busy focusing on the next rotation uh, and and just in time managing that to to have the cap capacity to sort of do the data analysis and see this stuff that's not a get out of jail card i don't think that means you know that nobody's responsible clearly people were in positions where they should have been doing that but I think it is contextualized by just how busy we were for that, that period of time. And, and human nature. The human nature is to focus on the next problem. You know? And if you don't have time for anything else, then, then you're a human being. You go home exhausted like everybody else, even if you are working in Bungandore and trying to read you know, multiple reports. I think it's also human nature, at least these days, to want a simple black and white answer that you can write in a tweet. And this isn't going to have that. So it's, that's why people are looking for a straight definitive answer from you and there isn't one. No, and, and look, even if there was people that came up with those answers, again, the, the, the political and command imperative to keep moving forward was, was pretty, pretty clear. You know, there was, there was nobody suggesting that SOCOM wanted to stop doing those, those rotations and there, I don't think there was any politician that was that keen to change the status quo. Um, you know, it was working. We, 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 yes, we lost people, but it was, you know, relatively low risk to continue to use special forces. The public appeared to like it, think it, that it was good. Um, so why would anyone, you know, even if you had those answers or that data, you know, it, it was almost career suicide, I suspect, to be the person who, go, who waved that flag and went, oh, actually, hey, we better stop using special forces. I, I, you know, we, we might burn them out. I don't think that was going to be popular. Let's come back to your career, Mark. You have this escalation through special forces. And I suppose, as you described earlier, that professionalism increased. You get to see that across all levels. As we've covered, you were the company psychologist uh, for One Commando. You were then the regimental psychologist for SASR. In 09 to 11, you're a staff officer at Special Operations Headquarters. So where you previously had SOCOM reaching down to your guys at the lower level for advice, you now are a psychologist up there. That capability and capacity has grown. Walk me then through, I guess, uh, the rest of your career, what that 09 to 11 entails, what happens after that. Tell me the rest. Posting out of SAS in, at the end of 2008, in retrospect and certainly the time, it felt like it was the pinnacle of my career, particularly bearing in mind I started out as a, as a wannabe sports psychologist you know, so my job or my goal was certainly to work with the the best performers in the military, and and working uh, at SA the SAS regiment was certainly that. I mean, these guys were friggin' incredible, um, and you know, uh, twelve months of working in that unit full time, two deployments. I, I was pretty tired. I mean, I, I came out of there um, pretty wound up. I think is the is the short <laughs> short answer. Um, you know, it was frenetic um, and, and I needed a bit of a rest as well. So uh, I came back to Melbourne. I, ironically, I came back into a consulting job um, in the city street, which then saw me spend the next three years traveling through Southeast Asia working for mining companies. So I went back to deploying again. Um, uh, but I got on with my my personal life, I suppose. I wanted to re you know, reestablish and rebuild my, my city career because I needed to pay the bills. And I got posted into SO headquarters ostensibly in a project officer job. So my job was to put out spot fires. We, you know, we collated a lot of data by that stage. We, we, we knew some things had to be, some policies need to be written. Um, we needed to get better at selection. And so I, you know, supported the selection course over in Perth 
over each uh, of those successive years. I wrote some policy, did some project work around psychosocial risk in workplaces and contributed where I could, having now had all that experience. And look, I, I think like a lot of people, I, I was possibly a little bit under-enthused about being a staff officer and thinking that it would be quite uh, unglamorous. You're not the only person who's expressed that sentiment to me. Absolutely. Uh, and I would have been quite happy staying a major at that's, you know, uh, pro- well, probably even a captain. I think I'd been a captain, you know, for eight years by that stage. So I was well overdue promotion. But look, in hindsight, I, I do see the benefit in having, you know, people uh, who've been at the coalface in, in whatever profession, it doesn't have to be psychology, but, you know, if you've done the hard work, if you've, if you've done all those sorts of deployments, then you do bring a, a sense of reality and knowledge about what works uh, into a staff job, which is critical because if you're the one writing the policy about what's going to happen in the future, you want somebody who's had that sort of experience. So they write it from a perspective of this will actually work in the real world rather than I think the theory suggests this will work. So that, that, that caused some friction for me, um, no doubt. Um, certainly you know, back in a staff job, uh, even albeit in special operations headquarters, you still have to then interact with the rest of army and, and the rest of army hadn't had that rapid development. So, you know, there, there was some, I guess, some differences in perspective around how mental health needed to be implemented or, or changed from a policy perspective that, that I had to, you know, butt heads with uh, other people who were often more senior to me in terms of rank. Uh, and probably experiences as psychologists, but but hadn't had that set of experiences. So it was an interesting time. Um, after that, so 2011, I got posted out of, of SOCOM. I actually requested a posting uh, back into a, a reserve unit. I think I'd, I'd done my, my time as a staff officer um, and I, I really wanted to try and get back into, a, a I guess, a subunit. I fought for the opportunity to be a, a subunit commander, which is a bit of a rarity uh, as a psychologist again. Um, by that stage, uh, there were really only three health corps, which was you know medical, nursing, and dental. Uh, and around about that time, psychology was kind of bought in from the cold as the fourth health core, uh, which meant we were eligible for subunit command of health health units. Um, and yeah, so I, I sort of slipped under the radar as a reservist, having had this, the SOCOM experience gave me a lot of credibility in terms of, you know, knowing what I was talking about. Um, and I was very fortunate to get posted in as a subunit commander of a health company in Victoria reserve unit, and then spent the next sort of three years really trying to rebuild that capability. And after 21 years and seven months with the Army Reserve, starting as a soldier and finishing as a lieutenant colonel, you finally decide to hang up the uniform and fully embrace civilian life. Mm. So, yeah, look, it was a bit of a bittersweet decision. Uh, and I probably, to be honest, I mean, reservists have the luxury of you, you can kind of hang around in the wings without anyone typically noticing you there, certainly as, as a senior officer you get posted into these obscure places in Canberra on paper. Uh, and, and if you want to, you could kind of stick around and do nothing or well, nothing much or as much as you, you know, able to do for, for a long time. But I guess what I'd found and, and what I really enjoyed was the, the opportunity to do real stuff to, to the cut and thrust of actually getting stuff done. And look, I, I'm just no shrinking violet, as I'm sure you know, and I've rubbed some people's noses the wrong way, both in my own profession and in other other parts of army. So 
to, to, I guess, become a bit of a wallflower and, and sit in Canberra on paper um, was never something that I, you know, desired and, and knew, to be honest, that I'd probably be pretty crap at um, because I, I like getting stuff done. And so by that stage, I'd, I'd also started to become interested in, in veterans' issues um, and, and working with people that were, you know, the, the product of that 15 years. Um, and I saw more opportunity to do that out in, in, in you know, Civvy Street or at least DVA Street um, than inside, inside Defence. Um, and so I started to get involved in some veterans' projects and charities on the outside and found that I could, you know, contribute um, more effectively in my eyes and probably have more value and more fun uh, outside the military. Uh, conversely, look, I did get involved in a project towards the end, which was sort of a high-level project to, to rewrite the mental health strategy around resilience in, in Army, and I made some, some contributions to that. And look, no disrespect to anyone else who was involved in that project, but, but I could see that it was becoming a political monstrosity, uh, and I just, yeah, I thought felt, felt like the right time. Well, Mark. Tell me both, what are you doing with yourself today? And looking back, how do you reflect on your time in the army, what it did for you and what you did for it and where you're at today? Look, sure. And I think the only word I can use to describe serving alongside many of the people I've had the the good fortune to work with uh, and support as a psychologist, it's a privilege. I mean, as a psychologist, people are amazingly generous, I guess, in, in giving of them their own stories. And that's a, that's a pretty rare privilege. I mean, I think I tried to calculate, you know, how many people I've sat with and, and asked them to kind of tell me the story of their lives. And there'd be thousands, you know, thousands and thousands of soldiers of uh, sometimes not so willingly, but, you know, quite oftenly willingly told me, some of their deepest and darkest you know, stories and times, as well as their greatest successes. Uh, and, that, and that's a very privileged position to be in, to, to, to earn the trust of people and allow them to, to, to tell you some of the stuff that they might not even tell their families or, or tell their mates. Um, you know, you can't really uh, be given much more of a privilege than that. Uh, and so, to, you know, as my career progressed, to be able to try and shape things for them as a as a staff officer to try and make it better, um, you know, was certainly something that I that I enjoyed and relished, and and hope that you know along the way I've I've certainly made some differences for for individual uh, military personnel along the way. Um, for me personally, look, it, it's it's given me again that that unique experience as a as a mental health professional to to see people both at the pinnacle of their performance and and to learn a bit about what it takes. To, for a human being to perform at that level of extreme performance, which is again pretty unique, um, and conversely, the other end of the extremes where people are absolutely, you know, traumatized, devastated, destroyed by uh, their vocation or, or the, the requirements that come with it, uh, and to try and you know work out how to assist those people at that point in time. So, you know, I think as a psychologist compared to what I would you know very carefully turn my civilian colleagues um, we're incredibly fortunate to, to be able to see um, some amazing extremes of, of human experience now that that's a, a blessing and a curse uh, I think for me moving forward it's a blessing in that you know you really can see what what humans are capable of which is we're, we're capable of pretty amazing stuff 
not just in a military context, but just as, as human beings, you know, the, the generosity and the, and the ability to be kind uh, in, in extremes of warfare is, is stuff that, you know, we've long uh, learned from as, as a species, you know, there's books that are written about, you know, the Jewish Holocaust, et cetera, that talk about, you know, how people can maintain a sense of humanity, even in the worst of situations. And to experience that firsthand is pretty cool. Uh, it also does tend to taint you a little bit. So, you know, as, as, a, as a psychologist who, if I wanted to, could quite easily go and get a job counselling, you know, people in the, in the middle sort of middle income, middle income, middle age group, you know, stream, there's, there's no shortage of work in general counselling. Uh, my tolerance uh, for, for some of the worried well issues that, that people deal with in our very comfortable, you know, safe, secure Australian environment uh, it is sometimes pretty lacking, to be honest. So I can I can be quite intolerant of that because once you've seen people do amazing things in extreme environment, and, and these most special forces soldiers aren't uniquely special people. They're just normal people that do amazing things. And so when you have, you know, no disrespect, but the the, the worried well, 35 to 45-year-old, married, mortgage stressed with two kids at private school, you know, thinking that their life is terrible. Uh, and expecting you to fix it in sort of six sessions of counselling with a magic wand, yeah, I'm not great at that anymore. Um, so I've kind of <laughs> been a bit tainted by that that military experience. But what I can do, and what I'm what I'm now focusing on, is certainly working with veterans. You know, so so that's you know the the audience or the group of people that I have expertise in. Um, and and I guess you know, the, the precursor to veterans, I guess, are, are, are young men primarily. I don't mean that with any disrespect, but, you know, when, when young men go through transitions like the rite of passage into adulthood, you know, boys become young men, there's a lot of similar issues that go on. There's, there's some sort of cut and thrust stuff there that's, you know, it can go really well and it can go really badly. Um, and, you know, often the, the, the decision points along that road are pretty, pretty slippery. So I see, find myself drawn to that sort of cohort of people and how do we set people up on these trajectories to live amazing lives right from the outset? And it starts much younger than joining the military. It starts, you know, back in parenthood and, and, and you know, school, et cetera. So trying to take that knowledge from that elite end and, and filter it all the way back into what, what are we doing good in our communities and what aren't we doing so well to set people up for success, you know, in life. It's, again, it's not about breeding amazing people. It's just taking those lessons that are hard won by, by veterans in places like war zones and saying, maybe we need to relearn some of this stuff back, you know, back for our communities as well. Well, Mark, thank you for your service and sharing not just your journey, but I guess your insights into what is obviously a very topical issue, a very complicated issue in this community, a bit of a divisive issue as well. So I'm very grateful for you to come on the show and just sort of share your day-to-day perspective on what that was like and what that meant and hope that can help inform the conversation we'll be having for years to come, I think, in constructive ways. So thank you very much for your candor and your time today. Absolute pleasure. In this podcast, Mark mentioned Dr. Dan Pronk. You can listen to Dan's original two-part interview in Season 2, Number 31, Dr. Dan Pronk, Volume 1, 
certainly I'd been part of medical teams that had lost people in the past, but it was always in a hospital environment and it still hits home to a degree, but it was just a whole different level when it's someone you know, someone who you've had breakfast with, you know, the day before. And also when you're the one everyone's looking to as the person who's going to save this situation and and you simply can't. And volume two. I knew that at some point I was going to need to deal with all the events that had happened leading up to there. I knew that I would go from that fast-paced life to a much slower-paced life. To find out what Dan is up to today, including his career as a writer, check out this year's episode, SAS Resilience, with Dr. Dan Pronk, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. These kind of things needed to be programmed into muscle memory because we know that when you are under significant stress and we were training these medics to go into combat environments. This was towards the end of our selection course in a phase called Lucky Dip. When I looked around the gloom as the sun was setting on that particular day, there was a range of people inside that truck that were grossly and profoundly disappointed with the fact that their mind and body layer weren't connected. In this conversation with Mark, I referenced the death of Sean McCarthy. For more about Sean's passing, and for an interview with an SAS veteran who is now a psychologist, go back to Season 4 and listen to Number 68, Harry Moffat, Volume 2. The leader is there to hold the light in the dark, to show the way forward. And for another podcast touching on some of the topics in this episode, listen to the Season 5 interview, Number 28, Mark Wales, Volume 2. A war like that will turn good men bad and bad men evil. Follow us at Life on the Line Podcast on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at L-O-T-L Pod on Twitter and at Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Theme music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Closing music, The Hell Beyond by The Externals. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. A man sure walks slow, mighty step be your last. It can steal the mind quickly, and it can harden your heart. And you yearn for your family, and you long for your wife, and all that you're missing from a wonderful life. But out here I'm a soldier and a long way from home And I gave up those comforts a long time ago Out here in the dirt and the heat and the dry There's no time for nostalgia, less acquaintance of mine Just then I looked round and I caught Rowdy's eyes And it snapped me back quicker than he raised up his sides He squeezed up some rounds from behind a mud wall As I dived to me guts and I started to crawl Well I've tried to forget how I tried But I'll never forget how the fear stole my mind The cornfields erupted She'd scared with self-doubt My throat was bone dry And me heart filled me mouth As the shots cracked around us I remember the high But it wasn't excitement I was just terrified The steel tore through clothing Mud walls, trees and flesh As I emptied my bag Towards nothing at best And as I crawled forward And I looked through my sights I turned and saw Rowdy Give a wink and a smile 
shouted with me as he sprung to his feet with his gun up and firing out into the green and the dirt all around him like rain on a pond as he made his way into the hell just beyond Ooh. well I've tried to forget how I've tried and fire. I remember the dust, how the grip cut in the eyes. We battled and fought through the streets, maze and mud. And when I reached Rowdy, he was covered in blood. I crawled up beside him and I laid by his side. Not sure it was sweat or tears sting in his eyes. He grabbed for my hand and he winced through a smile as the din all around him fell silent and made in a bag as I licked at a rolly and we passed round a drag we picked up and moved we were dog tired and beat we were the dreaming awake and the walking asleep as I sat with a beer looking over the dash and I drank and I pondered the shit day we'd had but nothing like rowdy so I raised up my glass and I whispered to old mate it was over too fast Shut 